Section 36 of The Wit and Humor of America, Volume 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Henry Niemark. The Evidence in the Case of Smith v. Jones by Samuel L. Clemens. I reported this trial simply for my own amusement one idle day last week, and without expecting to publish any portion of it. But I have seen the facts in the case so distorted and misrepresented in the daily papers that I feel it my duty to come forward and do what I can to set the plaintiff and defendant right before the public. This can best be done by submitting the plain, unembellished statements of the witnesses as given under oath before His Honor Judge Shepard in the police court, and leaving the people to form their own judgment of the matters involved, unbiased by argument or suggestion of any kind, from me. There is that nice sense of justice and that ability to discriminate between right and wrong among the masses which will enable them, after carefully reading the testimony I'm about to set down here, to decide without hesitation which is the innocent party and which the guilty in the remarkable case of Smith versus Jones. And I have every confidence that before this paper shall have been out of the printing press 24 hours, the high court of the people, from whose decision there is no appeal, will have swept from the innocent man all taint of blame or suspicion and cast upon the guilty one a deathless infamy. To such as are not used to visiting the police court, I will observe that there is nothing inviting about the place, there being no rich carpets, no mirrors, no pictures, no elegant sofa or armchairs to lounge in, no free lunch, and in fact nothing to make a man who has been there once desire to go again, except in cases where his bail is heavier than his fine is likely to be, under which circumstances he naturally has a tendency in that direction again, of course, in order to recover the difference. There is a pulpit at the head of the hall, occupied by a handsome gray-haired judge, with a faculty of appearing pleasant and impartial to the disinterested spectator, and prejudiced and frosty to the last degree to the prisoner at the bar. To the left of the pulpit is a long table for reporters. In front of the pulpit the clerks are stationed, and in the center of the hall a nest of lawyers. On the left again are pine benches behind a railing occupied by seedy white men, negroes, Chinamen, Kanakas, in a word by the seedy and dejected of all nations. And in a corner is a box where more can be had when they are wanted. On the right are more pine benches for the use of prisoners and their friends and witnesses. An officer in a gray uniform and with a star upon his breast guards the door. A holy calm pervades the scene. The case of Smith versus Jones being called, each of these parties, stepping out from among the other seedy ones, gave the court a particular and circumstantial account of how the whole thing occurred and then sat down. The two narratives differed from each other. In reality, I was half persuaded that these men were talking about two separate and distinct affairs altogether, inasmuch as no single circumstance mentioned by one was even remotely hinted at by the other. 
Mr. Alfred Sowerby was then called to the witness stand and testified as follows. I was in the saloon at the time, Your Honor, and I see this man Smith come up all of a sudden to Jones, who weren't saying a word, and split him in the snoot. Lawyer. Did what, sir? Witness. Busted him in the snoot. Lawyer. What do you mean by such language as that? When you say that the plaintiff suddenly approached the defendant who was silent at the time and busted him in the snoot, do you mean that the plaintiff struck the defendant? Witness. That's me. I'm swearing to that very circumstance. Yes, Your Honor, that was just the way of it. Now, for instance, as if you was Jones and I was Smith, well, I comes up all of a sudden and says, I, to Your Honor, says, I, damn your old tripe. Suppressed laughter in the lobbies. The court. Order in the court. Witness. You will confine yourself to a plain statement of the facts in this case and refrain from the embellishments of metaphor and allegory as far as possible. Witness considerably subdued. I beg your honor's pardon. I didn't mean to be so brash. Well, Smith comes up to Jones all of a sudden and mashed him in the bugle. Lawyer. Stop. Witness. This kind of language will not do. I will ask you a plain question, and I require you to answer it simply. Yes or no. Did the plaintiff strike the defendant? Did he strike him? Witness. You bet your sweet life he did. Gad, he give him a pastor in the trumpet. Lawyer, take the witness. Take the witness. Take the witness. I have no further use for him. The lawyer on the other side said he would endeavor to worry along without more assistance from Mr. Sowerby, and the witness retired to a neighboring bench. Mr. McWilliamson was next called and deposed as follows. I was a standing as close to Mr. Smith as I am to this pulpit, chafing with one of the lager beer girls, Sophronia by name, being from Somers in Germany, so she says, but as to that I... Lawyer. Well, now, never mind the nativity of the lager beer girl, but state as concisely as possible what you know of the assault and battery. Witness. Certainly, certainly. Well, German or no German which I'll take my oath I don't believe she is, being of a red-headed disposition with long bony fingers and no more hankering after Limburger cheese than lawyer. Stop that driveling nonsense and stick to the assault and battery. Go on with your story. Witness. Well, sir, she, that is Jones, he sidled up and drawed his revolver and tried to shoot the top of Smith's head off, and Smith run, and Sophronia, she walloped herself down in the sawdust and screamed twice, just as loud as she could yell. I never see a poor creature in such distress, and then she sung out, Oh, hell's fire, what are you up to now? Oh, my poor dear mother, I shall never see you more, saying which, she jerked another yell and fainted away as dead as a wax figure. Thinks I to myself, I'll be danged if this ain't getting rather dusty, and I'll... The court... We have no desire to know what you thought. We only wish to know what you saw. Are you sure Mr. Jones endeavored to shoot the top of Mr. Smith's head off? Witness. Yes, Your Honor. The court. How many times did he shoot? Witness. Well, sir, I couldn't exactly say as to the number, but I should think, we'll say seven or eight times. As many as that, anyway. The court. Be careful now, and remember you are under oath. What kind of a pistol was it? Witness. It was a Derringer, Your Honor. The court. A Derringer? You must not trifle here, sir. A Derringer only shoots once. How then could Jones have fired seven or eight times? 
The witness is evidently as stunned by that last proposition as if a brick had struck him. Witness. Well, Your Honor, he, uh, that is, uh, she, Jones, I mean, so f the court. Are you sh sure he fired more than one shot? Are you sure he fired at all? Witness. I'm, I, well, perhaps he didn't, and, and Your Honor may be right. But you see that girl with her dratted yowling, altogether it might be that he did only shoot once. Lawyer. And about his attempting to shoot the top of Smith's head off. Didn't he aim at his body or his legs? Come now. Witness, entirely confused. Yes, sir, I, I think he did. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure of it. Yes, sir, he must have fired it at his legs. Nothing was elicited on the cross-examination except that the weapon used by Mr. Jones was a bowie knife instead of a derringer and that he made a number of desperate attempts to scalp the plaintiff instead of trying to shoot him. It also came out that Sophronia, of doubtful nativity, did not faint and was not present during the affray, she having been discharged from her situation on the previous evening. Washington Billings, sworn, said, I see the row, and it warn't in no saloon, it was in the street. Both of them was drunk, and one was a-coming up the street, and t'other was a-going down. Both of them was close to the houses when they fust see each other, and both of them made their calculations to miss each other, but the second time they tacked across the pavement, drifting like diagonal. They come together down by curb, almighty soggy they did, which staggered them a moment, and then over they went into the gutter. Smith was up fust, and he made a dive for a cobble and fell on Jones. Jones dug out and made a dive for a cobble and slipped his hold and jammed his head into Smith's stomach. They each done that over again twice more, just the same way. After that, neither of them could get up any more, and so they just lay there in the slush and clawed mud and cussed each other. On the cross-examination, the witness could not say whether the parties continued the fight afterward in the saloon or not. He only knew they began it in the gutter and to the best of his knowledge and belief they were too drunk to get into a saloon and too drunk to stay in it after they got there if there were any orifice about it that they could fall out again. As to weapons, he saw none used except the cobblestones, and to the best of his knowledge and belief they missed fire every time while he was present. Jeremiah Driscoll came forward, was sworn, and testified as follows. I saw the fight, Your Honor, and it wasn't in a saloon or in the street nor in a hotel nor in the court. Was it in the city and county of San Francisco? Witness. Yes, Your Honor, I think it was. The court. Well, then go on. Witness. It was uh, up in the square. Jones meets Smith, and they both go at it. That is, uh, blackguarding each other. One called the other a thief. The other said he was a liar, and then they got to swearing backwards and forwards pretty gently, as you might say, and finally one struck the other over the head with a cane. And then they closed and fell, and after that they made such a dust, and the gravel flew so thick that I couldn't rightly tell which was getting the best of it. When it cleared away, one of them was after the other with a pine bench, and the other was prospecting for rocks and... Lawyer... There, 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 that, that will do, that will do. How in the world is anyone to make head or tail out of such a string of nonsense as that? Who struck the first blow? Witness. I cannot rightly say, sir, but I think, lawyer, you think. Don't you know? Witness. Uh, no, sir, it was all so sudden and, lawyer. Well then, state, if you can, who struck the last? Witness. I can't, sir, because... Lawyer, because what? Witness, 
Because, sir, you see, toward the last they clinched and went down and got to kicking up the gravel again and... Lawyer, resignedly, take the witness, take the witness. The testimony on the cross-examination went to show that during the fight, one of the parties drew a slung shot and cocked it, but to the best of the witness's knowledge and belief, he did not fire, and at the same time, the other discharged a hand grenade at his antagonist, which missed him and did no damage except blowing up a bonnet store on the other side of the street and creating a momentary diversion among the milliners. He could not say, however, which drew the slung shot or which threw the grenade. It was generally remarked by those in the courtroom that the evidence of the witness was obscure and unsatisfactory. Upon questioning him further and confronting him with the parties to the case before the court, it transpired that the faces of Jones and Smith were unknown to him and that he had been talking about an entirely different fight all the time. Other witnesses were examined, some of whom swore that Smith was the aggressor and others that Jones began the row. Some said they fought with their fists, others that they fought with knives, others tomahawks, others revolvers, others clubs, others axes, others beer mugs and chairs, and others swore there had been no fight at all. However, fight or no fight, the testimony was straightforward and uniform on one point, at any rate, and that was that the fuss was about $2.40, which one party owed the other, but after all it was impossible to find out which was the debtor and which was the creditor. After the witnesses had all been heard, his honor, Judge Shepard, observed that the evidence in this case resembled in a great many points the evidence before him in some 35 cases every day on an average. He then said he would continue the case to afford the parties an opportunity of procuring more testimony. I have been keeping an eye on the police court for the last few days. Two friends of mine had business there on account of assault and battery concerning Washoe stocks, and I felt interested, of course. I never knew their names were James Johnson and John Ward, though, until I heard them answer to them in that court. When James Johnson was called, one of these young men said to the other, That's you, my boy. No, is the reply, It's you. My name's John Ward. See, I've got it written here on a card. Consequently, the first speaker sung out, Here, and it was all right. As I was saying, I have been keeping an eye on the court, and I have arrived at the conclusion that the office of police judge is a profitable and a comfortable thing to have. But then, as the English hunter said about fighting tigers in India under a shortness of ammunition, it has its little drawbacks. Hearing testimony must be worrying to a police judge sometimes when he is in his right mind. I would rather be a secretary to a wealthy mining company and have nothing to do but advertise the assessments and collect them carefully and go along quiet and upright and be one of the noblest works of God and never gobble a dollar that didn't belong to me, all just as those fellows do, you know. Oh, I have no talent for sarcasm, it isn't likely, but I trespass. Now, with every confidence in the instinctive candor and fair dealing of my race, I submit the testimony in the case of Smith versus Jones to the people, without comment or argument, well satisfied that after a perusal of it, their judgment will be as righteous as it is final and impartial, and that whether Smith be cast out and Jones exalted, or Jones cast out and Smith exalted, the decision will be a holy and a just one. I leave the accused and the accuser before the bar of the world. Let their fate be pronounced. End of the evidence of the case of Smith versus Jones, recording by Henry Niemark.